0: It is such a beautiful day to be alive, and I'm so glad we have this time together. I'm Sanaa Labourne. I am a professor, scholar, connector, and avid reader. I've always loved learning about what's happening in our social world and sharing that knowledge, especially over a good cup of coffee. And so here we are. Each week on Let's Grab Coffee, I catch up with experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. Grab that cup of coffee and get ready for an engaging and insightful conversation. Tell me this: have you ever expensed the lunch or travel that wasn't just about work? Added a little extra time on your timesheet? Maybe you got in late or you left early. Didn't report all of your earnings on your tax return. If so, that's fraud. Yep, fraud is not just identity theft, Ponzi schemes, or embezzling millions of dollars. Fraud is all around us. To help us understand the fraud we see and even the fraud we choose not to see, today I'm joined by Dr. Kelly Richmond Pope. Dr. Pope is the Dr. Barry J. Epstein Endowed Professor of Forensic Accounting at DePaul University. She is a nationally recognized expert in risk, forensic accounting, and white-collar crime research, an award-winning educator, researcher, author, and also an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Dr. Pope teaches managerial and forensic accounting, both at the undergraduate and graduate level. In 2020, the American Institute of CPAs and the CPA practice advisor named Dr. Pope among the top 25 most powerful women in accounting. Her research on executive misconduct culminated in directing and producing the award-winning documentary, All the Queen's Horses, which is so good, you have to see it. This documentary explores the largest municipal fraud in U.S. history. Her TED Talk, entitled How Whistleblowers Shape History, has been viewed over 1.6 million times, translated into 20 languages, and serves as a resource to help organizations and individuals embrace internal whistleblowing. Dr. Pope is a frequent international speaker to numerous corporations, nonprofits, and government agencies. She has appeared on news outlets such as CNBC, the BBC, and WGN-TV, offering commentary on risk, fraud, and ethics. Additionally, she has appeared in publications such as Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, CFO Drive, Accounting Today, Forbes, The Washington Post, and The Daily Beast, discussing fraud and the need for sound internal controls. Her book is Fool Me Once, Scams, Stories, and Secrets from the Trillion Dollar Fraud Industry, and she joins us today. Hi, Kelly. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I just had
1: my cup of tea, so I'm ready for you.
0: <laughs> Look, that absolutely counts. Coffee, tea, just you know, a nice beverage, I think. It's the conversation flowing. Well, I have to be honest. When I saw the title of your book, it immediately pulled me in. I mean, fool me once, right? Scam Stories and Secrets from the Trillion Dollar Fraud Industry, you know, I was thinking about, I just saw a friend of mine say how she got caught up in one of those text scams where it's like, oh, someone is is hacking your account. You know, your account has been compromised. Click here and and, and follow these instructions to secure your account. And of course, what ended up happening, as you know, is she gave away personal information <laughs> that was then used um, to steal her identity. So fraud is definitely everywhere all at once around us at all times. And of course we think, you know, we can't be scammed, but many of us are. And so this book, I was completely enthralled by all of the stories of not just perpetrators and and victims, but also the whistleblowers. Well, one of the things I wanted to make sure I did with the book
1: was, it's not a memoir, but I wanted to share the personal experiences that I've had. I've had with um, doing the interviews, doing the documentary, uh, sometimes being victimized, never being a fraudster, <laughs> but sometimes being a whistleblower. like I wanted to I wanted to share more of an inside look because there are a lot of fraud books mm-hmm. um, that sort of people that delve in the space, but I wanted it to make to be unique to me and relatable. So I appreciate that you liked the reading journey.
0: Yes. You know, I I was, you know, writing notes all throughout. And one of the first notes I wrote was that I just love the tone of the book because, yeah. yes, because you make it, it's so easy to understand, right? And it's very, a very welcoming and friendly tone, especially, and I think this is important and we'll probably talk about this later. You know, one part is about whistleblowers and I feel like there has to be a very kind of friendly, engaging tone with that so that we understand why it's important um, to be a whistleblower if we do see something, right? See something, say something. Um, So I love that tone of the book. I thought it was really fun and engaging but what I also really loved was all the statistics and the facts that you were able to include throughout and so for me um I love to know like all the data and there were many stats that I was like oh my goodness I can't you know I can't believe this so I thought it was a great balance of these stories that at times seem unreal but in fact are real cases of fraud um, as well as all of the data throughout as well.
1: Well, thank you. I I appreciate that. I I think um, one of the challenges of being, having two titles, that's an academic Mm -hmm. and an accountant. And those two words together might be doubly boring (laughs) to most people. (laughs) So that's why I have to add documentary filmmaker into it, because at least that sounds a little bit more interesting. But (laughs) you're laughing because I think you agree with me. So the tone, striking the right tone was so important and intentional because mm-hmm. people automatically will shut down. You know, another thing that I wanted to do was have a title that was a phrase that when people saw it, they knew exactly what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And so, um even when I even when doing the documentary All the Queen's Horses, You know, like at the time, my kids were a little bit younger and I remember the nursery rhyme, all the King's horses and all the Kings, you know, going, playing Mm -hmm. off of that, like something that you've sort of heard before, but fool me once is something that most of us, if we haven't heard the saying, we know what it means. Hey, you might give me one time, but you're not (laughs) going to get me two times. And so, um, so, but, but the tone, I wanted to make sure that the, the tone matched. So that was, (laughs) that was intentional. So thank you for noticing that.
0: Yes. Well, you you absolutely did. And I understand like as also as an academic, sometimes the the things we say or the way we say it for an academic audience. Oh my goodness. It's so boring. Uh- <laughs> in, 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 in our training is not, we're not trained to speak to the
1: public. We're trained to speak to each other mm-hmm. and and speaking to a larger audience was something that I wanted to do. Also, when you think about tone, One of the things, um, the way the the book is organized is really in three sections. It's the perpetrators like the first third, the victims are the middle, and then the whistleblowers are the last third. And so one of the reasons why the the tone is important is because the arguments that I'm making that all perpetrators are not the same. So we can start there. They're all not the same. Everyone Mm -hmm. does not steal for greed. And so... This idea that we can say, that's them, never me. I wanted to break that down because I wanted to figure out a way that you would see yourself potentially in this. So, even in your open, have you ever said, Yeah, I was at work three hours, but I really (laughs) was just 30 minutes, you know, or I went to the conference. And instead of going to all the sessions, I took my whole family and I just signed in and walked out and we, Mm -hmm. we, we vacationed on the, on the dime of the company. You know, I wanted people to be able to see their own missteps. And so creating these two other uh, perpetrator categories, which are an accidental perpetrator and a righteous perpetrator Mm -hmm. is really important in terms of tone, because I want you to be able to see maybe you're, you, you probably don't see yourself as an intentional, but you might see yourself as an accidental or righteous. So how mm-hmm. could I, how could I create a conversational tone that breaks down barriers that allows me to allow you to possibly see yourself in some of these scenarios. So that was why tone was really important.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that was so key in being able as a reader to say, oh, I understand why this person did that. Or, oh, I might have made a similar choice or even, oh, wow, I I might have been making some similar <laughs> choices. <laughs> like, is right. that really fraught? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, so, sometimes we don't think about um, how it adds up. I, um, when I was writing the book and it was in the edit process with Harvard, I um, s- created this game called the Fool Me Once Fraud Experience. And so what it, when you go through it, it's the scenarios that I created based on some of the stories from the book. But at the end, it tells you one of two things. What type of perpetrator you would ever be if you were to be one and what type of whistleblower you would ever be if you were to be one. And what has been shocking when I do talks And I play the game in large audiences is how much we are in agreement with some of the unethical choices that many of the perpetrators make. And so that's the point to be able to see yourself, see you rationalize why when you want something, you'll rationalize it strong enough to get it. And so that that we, we need to see ourselves in this whole fraud cycle.
0: Mm -hmm. And that was definitely one of the takeaways. And for folks who are interested, they can go to your website, kellyrichmondpope.com and see some of those um, interactive games as well to figure out, okay, you know, what type of (laughs) perp or whistleblower might they be? Right, right. I mean,
1: you know, it's what I tell myself or tell myself when I tell my students in class is it's not if fraud happens in the organization that you join, it's when. Because we there's there's so much subjectivity in decision making in in business decision making that you you'd be surprised how often these kinds of scenarios will come up. So understanding what our triggers are before you find yourself in that situation, I think is really key.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. And you know, you said something just now, and then also you you mentioned it in the book as well. About how you know any of us under the right circumstances and in the right environment could commit fraud, and that might be difficult for some people to hear or to accept. Like, no, I could never do that. Uh, but like you said, in you know in the interactive games that you have on your website, but then also in the book, you really show us the ways in which you know just this one different choice and the motivations behind that choice could lead us down a path, maybe not embezzling fifty million dollars, or maybe. I don't know, Um, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that uh, more, about those circumstances and the environment that might lead people to make some of the choices um, that you talk about in the book as far as perpetrators.
1: Sure. So when you think about um, the righteous perpetrator, the righteous perpetrator tends to be a superstar in the organization the star COO, star CFO, star salesperson, just the star. And that person tends to be above the rules, can Mm. be, because nobody wants to upset them. So if the star says, I need to do, you fill in the blank. You don't want to then say, well, you have to fill out this form in order for me to approve it. You just want whatever you need, how, Mm. you know, whatever I can do to support you. And so sometimes- That person can become so powerful that the internal controls that you may have in place in your organization, that person just sort of flies above those. And so, and I'm thinking of um, one of the cases, um, one of the stories in the book um, is a case of Kayla Rivello, who um, found herself engrossed in this terrible fraud scheme because she employed her husband Mm. and her husband started doing something unethical, which then made her in a tough situation to make a decision. Do I keep allowing him to, um, do work that wasn't completed and still submit an invoice or do I not? So the reason I bring that up is a lot of us make referrals. Mm -hmm. You know, I know a person who knows this person where our company is looking for this particular skill set, you know, someone let's refer this person in. And then, you know, these relationships are made. It's sort of how business is done, mm-hmm. but sometimes those relationships make it harder for you to enforce the internal controls or tell on the person that may be doing something wrong. And so we have to be mindful of, of those types of actions we we find ourselves
0: involved in. Mhm absolutely. I was thinking about one of the the quotes that you included from you know one of these cases and you're talking about how we think about you know family and and friendship and and I think they said faith um in this particular case um as really important to our relationships and who we are but those aren't a part of business, right? And so having those sound controls in place is not about your friendships, it's not about this idea of we're family or all the different values that we share. This is business and so there's a different different way we have to conduct business.
1: Yeah. And you're, you're talking about, um, Cheryl Obermiller in her case, uh, she was, um, an entrepreneur who was defrauded by her accountant Mm -hmm. and the way she was defrauded is so common because a lot of entrepreneurs are so passionate about their business. They find an accountant or they find someone that can handle the numbers and they don't, they don't either feel as though they have the skill set or have the interest in understanding the numbers. And so when you outsource the engine, because mm-hmm. the accounting is the engine of any business. When you outsource the engine and you're not monitoring, doing tune-ups on that engine, you, you not outsourcing it, then you make yourself vulnerable. And that's really what happened to Cheryl is, she wasn't paying attention to the operations of the accountant and -hmm. of the accounting in her business. She was busy, you know, she was growing the business. And I remember going uh, to Missouri and doing that interview. And um, I remember her saying, if I just opened the mail and Mm -hmm. gave my accountant the impression that I was paying attention, she probably would have stopped. But because she knew I wasn't looking at anything, it made it easy. And you think about people observing your behavior, the people mm. that are around you observing your behavior and knowing your patterns. And so once you make it known that your eye is not on those numbers, you make you can make yourself vulnerable. You have a target on your back. And so that's one of the, the lessons I learned Mm-hmm. From um, interviewing Cheryl, because it's not always about a sophisticated um, internal control system and five people and having a big four accounting firm. Sometimes it's it's just simple stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But you know, something that a lot of people you hear them say, "I don't like numbers. I don't mm-hmm. deal with numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't discuss money in this in this culture. We don't do that." Mm-hmm. So those two things alone make it really hard to um to talk about
0: it mhm Yeah, I mean, I think that really stuck with me as someone who right now is thinking about developing, you know, a a business and and a separate organization. And what I have often said to myself and other people in this process is that, oh, I don't want to deal with the numbers, I don't want to deal with the money. But after reading your book, I was like, oh, I got to deal with, I got to deal with all of this. I got to make sure I know. (laughs) Lean
1: in, lean into it. You know, you think about it. If you love your business. You love the money. you mm-hmm. you love accounting. If you love your business, you love accounting. They're one and the same. you know I, I always think about back in the day before banking was online, you know, the bank would send you something in the mail, it'd be your bank statement and you flip it over and you could um, balance your checkbook. Mm-hmm. you know, you would actually check to see is the bank right about the amount of money I have.
0: Mm-hmm. now,
1: we just trust whatever the bank says. If the bank says I have $50, then I I must have $50. We don't even check it anymore. Mm. And so this idea of outsourcing the most important part of your business just seems ridiculous to me. You know, I I meet so many people that'll say, you know, I I hate accounting. And I'm like, no you don't. If you like if you like your if you like your business and you want your business to grow, and you want your business to scale, Don't ever say that because you cannot outsource the engine of your business.
0: Mm, I think that is such an important lesson for people to understand. Like we got to get over it because that's definitely me where I have literally said like, oh, I don't want to do I don't want to have to look at the numbers. I don't want to do that. And reading this book, I was like, nope, I have to do it. I have to be aware because so many of the stories are simply people who weren't who had put 100% 100% trust in this person who then had all of their information and was able to, you know, take money. Um, And so that is definitely one of the takeaways is that, oh, if if we're not comfortable with it, we got to get comfortable with it or just learn to be uncomfortable. And that's fine.
1: Yes, yes, we have to because people can rob you blind. <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> they can. Absolutely. And you've seen that time and time again. One of the ways that I think we often think about fraud is that it can't happen to us, that, oh, we're smarter than that. Like, sure, it's happening to everyone around us, but not us. (laughs) Yeah. You know, one of
1: the things that makes us so susceptible to fraud is we're busy. And when you're busy, you don't do everything you're supposed to do. So even myself, what I find myself trying to do now is just on my to-do list for the day. Take off three things, Mm. because if I take off three things, it's going to allow me to do those seven even better. You know, make my to do list, take off three. And then that will allow me to focus. Mm -hmm. And I think our lack of focus and our ability to pack so much into the day is um, one of the reasons that makes us susceptible to fraud, because we aren't paying attention. We're not looking at our credit card statements Mm -hmm. and seeing all of the charges. We're looking to see if there's a big bump, but what if there's an $8 charge that happens Mm -hmm. every day, over 30 days, over 12 months, over two years, those things start to add up. So I think we also have this idea that fraud only matters when it's big, Mm -hmm. but we don't think about the drips, the drips of fraud that sort of add up to make it big. And Mm -hmm. so, um, That's also one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure that I focused on relatable stories. Because sometimes when you're only focusing on the large corporate cases, you don't see that affecting you. You don't, you know, Bernard Madoff, as fascinating as that story was, I didn't have money money enough money to, <laughs> right. to be invested I didn't know anybody who had enough money to be invested so as in as fascinating as it was it didn't speak to me mm-hmm. but Dixon Illinois mm-hmm. where is three hours from my where I live in Chicago and a woman sold by her own by herself embezzles 53.7 million dollars by just setting up a secret account and moving Mm. money from a to B in front of everybody and spending money on horses (laughs) in front of everybody is like, well, dang, that's Mm -hmm. pretty wild. That's an (laughs) everyday person, you know? And so Mm -hmm. there are enough cases like this where you don't have, they might not make all the headlines, But they are, they still have the huge impact and we need to learn from those.
0: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I was completely blown away by that story in Dixon, Illinois. Um, and so, of course, you can learn more in the documentary, All the Queen's Horses, which again, I love the title of that, um, and to learn how just an everyday woman, just government job, has managed to steal millions, $53 million, and no one know.
1: Nope, no one know. So hopefully nobody's out there getting any ideas, <laughs> but, it, but things like this happen mm. all the time, you know, when... It, I was um, working on an article for The Economist. And um, in that article, the number that I cited at that point was uh, broad being a $5.3 trillion problem. And if you think that this is a trillion dollar problem because of the intentional perpetrators, uh uh-uh. uh, mm. it's the everyday person that's the team player that doesn't want to push back, boss asked them to do something. You sort of co sign and find yourself sort of mixed into this mess. Or it's mm-hmm. the righteous perpetrator. The reason why this is such a huge problem is because now everybody's willing to try it out. You know, mm-hmm. if I don't get caught, I'm going to keep going.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so so we we have to see our role in this and why it's so large.
0: Yes. And I thought that was really key what you said about having these stories of kind of everyday people, again, not these really, you know, splashy headline stories where you're like, oh, that's so far removed from my reality that it's just like an interesting story, but to really make it, you know, real. And the one thing about the perpetrators that stuck out with me, um, I was really intrigued by the accidental perp because of that reason, like, you know, being a people pleaser, or as you mentioned, like new employees are often really susceptible but then I was thinking about again those toxic work cultures where we're a family, right? And and what do you do for family, right? You don't um, question them, <laughs> you know. You, you 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 you.
1: Yeah, we're not family. If, if listen, if you can hire or fire me, if you can fire me you evaluate me and you can give me a performance improvement plan, we're not family.
0: <laughs> we, absolutely, but that came to mind and how that can foster an environment of like you thinking, oh, I need to to just do whatever the boss says or to fudge these numbers or even how a lot of folks, you know, over-identify with their job, like that's their whole identity. So again, another motivator, you know, to just kind of go along um, and next thing you know, now, now you're being arrested. Now your whole life is down the drain. <laughs>
1: I think that I was at the beginning stages of watching like the team retreats and, you know, the closeness that people became at work.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: if you think about a generation out or maybe even two generations away from uh, my, our parents, my parents or even probably grandparents work, there was a there was a clear boundary between your work life and your personal life things that you would share at work the way that you would show up at work was very separate but now you know it's almost this work life blend where we integrate so so closely that it makes it hard to to tell a boss no i'm not going to do this mm. it makes it hard to tell on a boss when the boss is doing something bad it makes it hard because we now are like linked like this so it's like a it's like a a violation of trust if you do that so it's it's a tough situation when you find yourself needing to push back and so that accidental perpetrator category is probably the most disturbing to us because we see ourselves we we can easily see ourselves as that employee
0: easily mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, you mentioned something about how it makes it difficult for us if we see something to say something about it as well. When we have these work cultures where, you know, we're not just employees or you're not just my boss, you know, we're friends or something seeming like friends. And so it makes it more difficult because as you talk about in the book, there's that fairness loyalty trade-off when it comes to actually saying something. And, you know, one of one of the parts of your book is of course about whistleblowers. And I thought that this part, whoo, right? Because we have it's interesting. One, I think we're we're really um, taken away with these stories of whistleblowers. I was thinking about Aaron Brockovich. Um, like I love the movie, right? Or but at the same time, in our personal lives, we might feel very strongly that you're not supposed to say anything, right? That you shouldn't snitch. Um, that that's you know a bad character trait to say something. And so I was definitely feeling that kind of tug of these mm-hmm. different ideas in reading that chapter. You know,
1: the whole, that whole section was inspired by um, a TED talk that I gave. Um, And the original title of the TED talk was, why do we hate whistleblowers? Because we we really do. Like, Mm -hmm. we really, we hate them. And this is just sort of my opinion. We hate them because we are actually envious of a person that has so much confidence that they can step out in front of everybody and say, you're wrong. Mm. And we may not do that. I know my own self, like I feel pretty confident with myself, but can I really blow the whistle on the, pre- on the president of my university if I needed to? Like, could I really take that on? So the person that can do that, mm-hmm. maybe I'm a little jealous of that person. Mm-hmm. Maybe my jealousy of that really turns into distrust. And so maybe I'm just gaslighting that person to turn it into something that it really isn't. Because it's actually my insecurity. So that's really what what's this this section of the book started with is really trying to unpack. Why do we hate people that come out with truthful information against the group? Why do we why do we hate them?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, why should should we hate them? You know, like sh- should we? I don't think I think the answer to that is we shouldn't, but mm-hmm. we do, and yeah. so also breaking down um, the whistleblower category into into three categories because the whistleblower journey, I think varies based on the type of whistling they're doing Mm -hmm. and um, the organization that they're doing it on. Now, if you are a publicly held company and a whistleblower is out there whistling, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that stock price might drop. And if that stock price drops, Maybe there's going to be layoffs. Maybe people are going to lose their jobs. Maybe they're not going to be able to afford their homes. Maybe they're going to lose health insurance. Maybe they have kids in college that they're not going to be able to fund. There's like a a domino effect Mm -hmm. of what could happen if you're a publicly traded company. You're a nonprofit and people are out there whistling. Maybe that impacts your donations. Maybe your donations go down. And then maybe staff is cut because less money is coming in to fund the nonprofit. So there's these these reputational risks that can happen if someone is out there whistling. Now, what was really interesting to me about um, Kathy Swanson's experience as a government whistleblower is people seemed to celebrate her in a way that a vigilante whistleblower is not celebrated. Mm -hmm. And so it made it important for me to figure out Let's unpack this whistleblower construct to understand why, if it's if the person sort of stumbles upon it, is their journey a little bit different than the person that just is sitting, minding their own business and notices something's wrong. And then they just they're not on the team, but they just are an observer and whistleblow people to tend to not like that person, Mm. you know. So, so accidental whistleblower noble whistleblower and vigilante whistleblower so accidental as the name it, it describes is a person that stumbles upon some 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 problem of another and that's Kathy Swanson she was the accidental whistleblower she was doing her job she was the city clerk at, at Dixon stumbled upon she was doing her treasures report one day and noticed some odd things that her boss Rita Cronwell was doing The noble whistleblower is a little bit different because they are a member of a team Mm -hmm. and they notice that their team members, their colleagues, aren't doing what they're supposed to do. And they're the one that steps out. And when they do that, they are attacked, bullied, Mm -hmm. all the things that happen. The vigilante whistleblower, sort of slightly similar to the noble, except the vigilante is not part of the team. Imagine that the vigilante is the person that knows all the rules in the company, code of conduct up and down. And the minute anybody steps out, that person is going to blow the whistle. That's the vigilante.
0: Mm.
1: So all aspects of these whistleblower personas are important. You probably don't want all of one, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it was really, I, I really wanted to say that This idea of snitches and rats and tattletales and, and uh, traitors, those words that we tend to use really are going only to the vigilante whistleblower category because Mm -hmm. they are that person. They, they are ready. They're ready for whatever. They don't really need to be anonymous. They're Mm -hmm. fine saying, you know what? So-and-so wasn't doing this. I'm the one who told on them, this is what the rule is. It should be fixed. the vigilante, you know, Mm -hmm. they own it in a different way than the accidental. So I, you know, I think earlier in my career, if I had to be a whistleblower, I probably would be more of a accidental, Mm -hmm. but now in my life, I can see myself more on the vigilante side.
0: Ooh, yeah, I really appreciated these categories, because as you just mentioned, you know, we have in our mind, most predominantly this idea of the vigilante. Um, But there are different types of whistleblowers. And so important, because again, when I think about all of the, you know, the major cases of whistleblowing that we can think about, you know, currently or even throughout history, they led to important changes, right? We needed that information in order sometimes to make sure, ensure our safety, our physical safety, um, or to just ensure that the different institutions that we're a part of are running smoothly and we're not, we're not being defrauded by them. So whistleblowers do something very important for society, yet we see over and over again how vilified they are. Um, and they do endure a lot of consequences for speaking up. You know, there was um,
1: an article in Harvard Business Review that talked about the power of silence. And um, I thought it was really interesting because there was a section in the article that talked about it only really benefits the organization for someone to come forward. You know, it's easier to keep your mouth closed and stay silent because what does it do for you? You know, you're, Now your fists are up, you're defending yourself for who knows how long, even if you are right. And so you really want to create environments where people feel protected because they really don't have to say anything. It's important to create these environments because as the research shows us, most frauds are discovered by whistleblowers. So Mm. we have a responsibility to create environments that really nurture that uh, we want them to feel protected. And so, yeah, I whistleblowers are fascinating to me, I think, because I've never been a true one. And I, and, you know, and I really have to think long and hard like, what would I do? Who would I turn to? Am I prepared for the for the microscope then to be turned on me?
0: Hmm. Yeah, and and that is what I was thinking about as you shared some of these stories in the book of the ways that the whistleblowers were, you know, some of them lose their jobs. They might be thrust into the public eye, and then you have all this public ire against them. Um, or even thinking about just the physical and emotional distress that whistleblowers feel if there is a time between when they have you know blown the whistle and then something happens, right? Some sort of investigation. So thinking about in Kathy's case, um, and. I was Like, oh my goodness, like, there's one just this idea of like the emotional distress you might feel of should I say something, and then even you know, everything that happens after that. But what I think gave me a lot of of hope was how, as you mentioned in the book, all of the whistleblowers said they would still do it again, they would still blow the whistle. (laughs) They say, you know, they say
1: it, you know, and I wonder, um. I've probably caught most most of them on the tail end of that. <laughs> In it, maybe they'll be like, oh goodness, why did I do this? But um yeah, it's a journey. It's a journey for sure. And, you know, most of us don't live our lives where we are on the defensive every day, all day, you know, just trying to defend your name, your role. Like, why is it you? Why did you come out? What is your problem? You know, the 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 tables really turn. Really quickly on that said whistleblower. So I don't always know if it would be me, but I think I think I'm ready for it now.
0: Okay, look, we we will see. Watch out. You might stumble upon an opportunity. <laughs> you never know, right? You never know. Uh, something else that came to mind as I was reading about the whistleblowers was also the role of journalism. Um, because a, a lot of these times we're seeing um, investigative journalism or even sometimes whistleblowers going to the media or to to specific journalists in order to kind of blow the whistle. If, again, there might be a question of like, who do I even tell? And so that came up to to mind as well of like the importance of having journalists that we can trust or even outlets that we trust that can um, amplify this information when maybe it seems like nothing is being done. It's
1: interesting you bring up journalists because I think what's worth thinking about is what the role the journalist has in documenting the story. So is it just to tell the what or is it truly to understand the why? Mm. And part of my reason for the book and that tone that we talked about earlier was really wanting people to understand more about the why. One of the things when I would do talks with journalists, I would always say every journalist needs an accounting class.
0: Mm. because
1: i want a journalist to understand just a little bit more that financial statement those ba- those four basic financial statements why would someone overstate revenue why would someone understate expenses like you want to be able to understand numbers in a way that makes your writing your storytelling so more com- so much more compelling than just stating the facts that were in a department of justice press release because they're always going to just state the facts but Mm -hmm. a lot of times people want to know the why they want to know the story behind it so when I was thinking of the name of the book and I want and I put the word secrets I felt like all of the interviews I've tend to to, to do it's something that they're sharing with me that maybe nobody else cared about Mm -hmm. you know But I did, you know, maybe the press release from the Department of Justice didn't it didn't make it maybe the Securities and Exchange Commission complaint. They didn't care. But, you know, I sort of want to know more about your why and I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist, but I want to know more of from the couch potato psychiatrist. (laughs) (laughs) Why, you know, what motivated you? What were your pressures? Why did you, why did you feel that it was okay to do whatever you did or why did you, whether that's the perpetrator or the whistleblower side, like what, what compelled you to either commit it or what compelled you to either talk about it or tell about it? I want to know that. And so sometimes that feels like a little secret because you don't you don't read about that enough.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that why is so important. And you talk a lot about the why in the book to help us really, like you said, understand why perpetrators did this, why whistleblowers did this. Understand and also empathize
1: because it could be one of us. It could be any one of us. It could be a great friend of yours. It could be a sibling. You know, it could be any one of us. And so I, I want people to empathize just a little bit more.
0: Mhm. I think that empathy piece is key because what I walked away with from this book was understanding that fraud is definitely happening all around me. And someone I know is very likely committing fraud, whether in these quote unquote, smaller ways that, that we might think of, or potentially in, you know, a bigger way. And I think that's also something in the book that comes out is that in so many instances, people were just surprised to find out that this person that they trusted had defrauded them, right? And again, that kind of speaks to this idea of, you know, one, trust, but then two, understanding how this even happens and the why behind it. Because in most of these cases, it it, it is, it's just like everyday people who are doing these <laughs> extraordinary things that we never would have, we never would have thought about. We never, not, not that person, not our neighbor, not, you know, whoever, not our church member, but yet here they are committing fraud. Yeah.
1: I mean there and I think it happens so frequently because there are so many internal control weaknesses in organizations and we're not really talking about that. Like even with sound internal controls, you can you can easily think up a scheme. I mean anyone could say to your friend, "Hey, you can become a vendor. I know the person that's accepting the vendor, the vendor applications, and once you become a vendor, And once you get business, I want you to give me a kickback of 20% or 30% because I'm the person that um, made sure you got the job.
0: Fraud Mm. can
1: happen. (laughs) Now, what makes it fraud, the fraudulent part about it is that let's say that vendor is a phony vendor. Okay. So let's say that I know the person that's approving vendor applications. I'm going to set up a phony vendor. You're going to approve it then that phony vendor is going to issue an invoice and then the company is going to pay it. When I get that payment, I'm going to give you your kickback. There we have fraud, but that's easy just to come up with. Mm, Easy fraud folks. (laughs) Even with, even with sound internal control. So it's why we have to get people talking, you Mm -hmm. know, we have to give people scenarios. And so if you, if you flip through some of the exhibits in the book are games and, and activities I try to play with my students, you know, like, you know, what are your red flags? And some of them are really funny to me. Like, <laughs> you know, like if you don't like Beyonce, that's probably a red flag. I mean, at this point, it doesn't matter if you really like or not the whole world does. So if you don't, there's something that you stand, <laughs> if you sort of stand out now as something's wrong with you. That's how people are going to look at you, mm-hmm. you know, because, and, and so or I said it, if you don't like dogs, like not to say that you have to own a dog if you don't like them, you know. Like how could you not like a puppy? You know, how, how could you
0: not? <laughs> I love those lists of red flags because let me tell you, I'm reading the book, I'm like, I need to know these red flags. And then I start reading that I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but they just think about it. Think about this. I mean, they they're good ones. Like, have you
1: ever gotten a LinkedIn request and there's no picture? Yeah, what's up with that what? I don't know I don't know and then sometimes you get it you, you might you might hit it and then there's no information that is with it that should be a red flag absolutely there is something wrong now how many times do you get an email from someone what if it was a hotmail account you know you don't see as many hotmail not, <laughs> not as much or an msn an msn account right or sbc <laughs> global account like <laughs> Things that are sort of a little bit dated, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of bit dated. It, it's again, I didn't say it was fraudulent. I just said red flag. I just said
0: it, red, red flag. flag. You know, that Hotmail email account. I had a Hotmail for quite a while. And one of my friends told me, he was like, "Sana, so I'm gonna need you to get rid of that account. <laughs> it's a red flag. And I did, I did. I got, okay. So just so everyone knows. All right. That's, if I have any red flags, it's not that one. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, they're, they're just things. They're just
1: things that just sort of make you say, Hmm. And when you say the, Hmm, you need to dig a little bit deeper because you want to make sure that the business is legitimate. You want to make sure before you click link or, you know, click that link, that mm-hmm. it's not your bank account, it's also not open on your computer. Like, they're just things that you don't do now. Like, in public, public Wi-Fi areas, you shouldn't li- log on to your bank account. Like, just things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're just all kinds of things because we really can't trust in the way that maybe 20 years ago we did.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's so key, though, of cultivating our intuition and listening to those red flags or listening to those moments when you're like, hmm, and not just simply trying to rationalize it away, because that is telling us something that's information, right? That's trying to get us to pay attention. Um, and oftentimes there is something there worth investigating.
1: Yeah. I, this, a personal story that I include in the book was um, the time. The IRS called me <laughs> and, you know, and I, it was, i still needed to submit my return. So it was a perfect time to get a call. Cause I mean, but then I thought, hold on Kelly, when does the IRS ever called me? <laughs> Never. And why does it sound like it's a call center? Mm-hmm. Odd. And then when they said to me, well, we um are going to issue an arrest for uh there's a warrant issued for your arrest unless you mm. pay this seventy five hundred dollar balance and just we can we can if you give us your credit card right now we can settle it mm. yeah, come on yeah but you I can understand why elderly fraud is so high because a person that may be out of the cycle a little bit mm-hmm. may fall victim to that so the reason why I was paying attention to it, I was busy. I was doing five things at one time and I'm like, what? what, what? You know, I'm just listening and carrying on with the conversation. I'm like, you need my you're going to take my passport and you need my drivers like <laughs> my credit. This sounds crazy. The IRS would never call me and say that. But just mm-hmm. for the fun of it, I kept going. But I I I could have fallen victim to it.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, I think what's interesting in that story, too, is like you said, oh, the timing also kind of made you more susceptible to at least question like, OK, well, maybe this is, you know, maybe maybe the IRS is calling me. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it again, fraud can happen to any of us. I'm thinking again about when you talked about like elderly folks being targeted, you know, when people call and say, oh, your grandson or your grandchild is is in, you know, is got taken to jail and we need to post their bail. And that actually happened to a friend of mine. His grandmother got a call like that and she just gave her information because, of course, to her, she's thinking my grandchild needs me. Like, of course, yes. I'm going to give you this information over the phone, you know, um, and got thousands of dollars taken out of her account. Um, but again, like it can happen to any of us if we're not paying attention, right? If we are are super busy, if we're just, you know, clicking on, on things or if we're ignoring those red flags that we're, that we're seeing.
1: Now, the one area that I don't understand as well, and I didn't talk about this in the book uh, because I don't understand it as well, is the rom con the romance scheme, the, hmm. those scandals. Now, that's the one area that I don't talk about because I don't understand it well. You know, I don't understand the person that falls in love with a person they've never seen and gives them half a million dollars. I don't get that. I, I you know, I, I, just, I just don't get that. Like, you know, and so I... There's so many red flags, at, red flags at so many points in those stories that make me just say, is it real? Like, how does it happen? Because at some point I need to see you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> I need to see you. And I, 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 so I don't understand how you get $50 out of me. And I've never seen you. <laughs>
0: Kelly needs to see your face in person before she's giving you any of her money. Okay. (laughs) I I, I don't, I don't understand.
1: I don't, I can understand. Maybe we're, we're communicating and you might have asked for a plane ticket, but I'm going to get you the plane ticket. I'm not going to give you the money to get the plane ticket Mm -hmm. because if I did it once, cause fool me once, if I did it (laughs) once and you didn't come, Then, in my book, you already have money for that next ticket. So, I don't Mm. need to send you anymore. You know, so there's (laughs) that. That's the one thing that the one kind of schemes that I don't feel really think I understand, unless the scammer is reviewing the obituary section and is Mm. targeting people that way and finding people at a very vulnerable point, maybe.
0: Mm. But, but it is. Yeah, we need to maybe that will be a future future book, um, because we need to know it happens quite a bit. I know it is quite lucrative industry that folks, are, you know, are texting people and, and they are running these, you know, romance scandals. And we see it all the time about people who have given their life savings away and, and gotten catfished. Um, and so it couldn't be me either for a lot of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> but I am very but obviously it works, right? People are are getting money and being able to to swindle, right? Swindle their way um, out of people's money and, and into people's lives.
1: Yeah, that's the one area I'm just a little bit like, how does this
0: keep happening? <laughs> we'll have to stay tuned maybe you or some of your research assistants this will be you know very fruitful <laughs> maybe that will
1: be book maybe that will be book number two who knows
0: yeah or, or I, I feel like maybe book number two that it might already be in the works you leave us on quite a cliffhanger I don't want to give too much away uh but you do leave, leave us on quite an exciting cliffhanger in the book so I have to ask um what's next for you <laughs>
1: you know nothing is really next. I don't know. Like I do not know. I, um, the cliffhanger that I left you on was about a movie. So the movie comes out in a couple days and it's called the highest, the highest of stakes. Mm. And it's about, um, this question of, is this, um, this, this guy, Richard Hart, is he the latest crypto King or the biggest con man? And Mm. so, um, my position always was eh, crypto seems a little bit sketchy to me so that was always my role in the the, the docu series so it comes out in a couple of days but uh, yeah so that's i don't know what's next i don't have a next and, and you know normally i have something up my sleeve that i'm working on i did um i do have a um a a gaming um this educational gaming company that i work that i developed with uh, my partner called red flag mania so we are always launching seasons um our first season was when we pray our second season was when we heal the third season was when we break and there are all these true crime based um scenarios that students have to play a game and solve a case and they watch a movie and they go through all this evidence so it's like this experiential learning um Mm -hmm. environment that we've created so I'm always doing that but um I don't know if there's another book in me
0: (laughs) Well, this book was highly educational, informative, but also engaging, and so There's so much that I learned first and foremost to make sure that I, whether I think about myself as a numbers person or not, I am. And so, I mean, I think that was a major takeaway for me, but also really having more empathy um, for perpetrators, victims, and especially the whistleblowers. I'm not sure if I could blow the whistle. I'm not sure if I could could whistle. I don't know. And I don't know if I'm there yet. So I just hope I don't see anything. I don't need to see anything.
1: But you know what's funny? I don't either. But I was just thinking when you said you don't know if you go whistle. And I had this debate earlier with someone else, um, if the name should or should not be whistleblowing, because the person thinks that whistleblowing is such a bad thing to say. But the one of the reasons why I do like the word is whistling is hard. Mm-hmm. And to whistle loud is even harder. You know, it takes a very um, a a couple things have to go right in order for you to whistle with whether you're whistling with your lips, whistling through your teeth, whistling with your fingers. There's so Mm -hmm. many different ways you can do it. So I think that, and, and it, when someone does it, it's very high pitch and it hurts your ears too. So I think all of the, the characteristics of what a whistle is, is really a good term for it. But to your point, I don't
0: know if I could all, if I could do it loud enough. Well, maybe, maybe we'll see, Uh, you know, life has a funny way of giving us opportunities. Uh, (laughs) So we'll, we'll see what might, might happen. We might have to check back in. Uh, Well, Kelly, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's such a pleasure chatting with you.
1: I appreciate it and had a great time for every moment. So thank you.
0: Thank you again to Kelly Richmond Pope. The book is Fool Me Once, Scam Stories and Secrets from the Trillion Dollar Fraud Industry. When I tell you I could not put this book down, I could not put it down. I was blown away by some of these cases of fraud, the way it happened and the people who did it. Because again, A lot of the folks in this book and in in real life, right? It's not just stories. These are real life cases. We're just everyday people. People you're like, I cannot believe that you did that. But I think what Kelly does so beautifully in this book is help us to empathize with the perpetrators, with the victims. And then yes, also with the whistleblowers. I learned so much from this book. It also made me Google different whistleblower cases and you would be surprised at the different law. Lawsuits, the different companies, and also the different settlements. So that might be something. If you're if you're already intrigued, you might want to go ahead and Google some of these cases as well, because there is so much to learn. And I'm just so glad that I read this book, because again, you all know I wouldn't necessarily call myself a numbers person. But after reading this, I am convinced that whether or not I identify as a numbers person, it does not matter. I am going to be a numbers person because I cannot get scammed. I cannot be defrauded out of any of my money. And I'm sure that you feel the same way. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR. I'm Sana, and I'm here every Monday morning and I hope that you will join me here as well. Of course, if you miss any part of the show or maybe just want to re-listen to some of it, make sure you're subscribed to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format so you never miss a conversation and it also makes it super easy to share this show with a friend. Just want to leave you with this reminder, each and every day, you get to decide. Yes, you get to decide what type of day it's going to be how you're going to show up in this world and over time it's those daily choices that create your life so what type of life are you creating